Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name is James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I have Andrew Barraclough, who's VP of Design and Innovation at GlaxoSmithKline. So I've just finished speaking to Andrew and it was an awesome chat, really interesting. Um, Andrew's got about 30 years of experience in design and innovation. He joined GSK in 2011, uh, previously worked at something called the Design Business Association. He's worked at Novartis, he's worked at a company called Pure Realization, which he founded himself. Um, and now he's at GSK, he does loads of cool stuff, so describes it as kind of continuing to push the boundaries of perception of design. Does that across 146 markets, across over 25 global brands. He's worked on Panadol, Sensodyne, Theraflu, uh, loads of different stuff. And his kind of idea and, and mission is to embed world-class design thinking and culture across all customer touch points. Um, so on the podcast, you'll hear lots of stuff about design obviously you'll hear my definition of design of what i thought it was versus the reality sort of coming out as we as we talk through the podcast we talk about communicating return on investment as a designer to startups and trying to encourage startups to realize the value of design and designers we talk about what design thinking is uh, we talk about why all startups need to apply it um, and we talk a lot more about the individual work that andrew has done to give everybody an idea of the importance of design in the health tech sector. Um, so as always, you can get in touch with us at uh, HS Venture on Twitter. You can ping us on Instagram at hs.ventures and you can get in touch with me by searching James Somaru on all the usual LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. Um, so enjoy the podcast and learn everything you can about design. Cool. So, Andrew, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm very good, thanks. I'm very good. I've just landed from Singapore this morning. Oh, um, lovely. So, I'm a little bit jet-lagged, but uh, <laughs> apart from that, I'm good. I'm good. Very good. What were you doing out there? Uh, I had a big team meeting, so I've got quite a, um, quite a large team there. We, we, we're quite lucky at GSCAM. We have both an in-house design team, and we work with external agencies as well. So, in oh, amazing. Singapore, that's where we have some of my designers that we where we do stuff ourselves, which is great. Wow, awesome! So that was a bit of a spoiler alert, then I guess for for our listeners. But um, for their benefit, Andrew, why don't you tell us uh, your story? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been at GSK quite a while, about eight years now. But it started. I'm in my thirtieth year of my career this year, uh, and I started out actually as a designer. I used to work for the company that makes the board game Monopoly, a company called Waddington's. And uh, it's where I started my career. Uh, I spent the first sort of three or four years of my career there working in, in design and in packaging. Uh, before I moved to, into the world more of FMCG, and I moved to a company at the time was called Reckitt & Coleman. It's now called Reckitt Benkiza. And I moved into an R&D role there, a, a product development and packaging development R&D role, uh, which I did for about five years. Everything from helping set up new production lines to troubleshooting when things were going wrong and predominantly working on uh, new products, new ideas, bringing new things to market, uh, which was good fun, which was really, really good fun. But uh, I have to be honest, I got a bit sick of being told what to do by our marketing colleagues. Uh, so... That's when I thought I need to get myself a master's degree and I want to move into a marketing function and I want to run and control things more and control brands, control the decision-making process, run, run a P&L, understand the financial side of an organization, uh, but predominantly build brands. And that, that was the thing that I got really excited about. And so with Rekit Benkiza at the time, I, I moved into a marketing role which is probably, in hindsight, the best career move I've ever done. And I think at the time it was quite scary because I, I, I took a demotion at the time to do that because uh, I was sort of in my late 20s at the time. So I needed to move down in, in job titles. Uh, but the learning I had in the five years I spent in marketing has 
one of the things that massively set me up for success because you have to become such an agile all-rounder from understanding consumer insights to understanding factories, understanding finance, P&L, element of HR. I think the idea of brand management is running like your own small business. And uh, probably where I got a bit hooked on brands and, and understanding consumers and how to satisfy them and leverage leverage things to make money for organizations and to delight consumers. And that's when I, I got the bug. So I actually, I then left and set up my own business because uh, I, I wanted to create my own brand. Uh, and I set up a company called Pure Realization, which was a product design and innovation company. Uh, so again, a bit of a twist in my career. And I think if I look at my career, I've probably, I've not had one career. I've probably had about four careers, um, which we might come back to. Uh, so I left, set up my own, own design company, um, got some offices, hired some space, recruited some people, um, and got into some very different fields, which were quite interesting. So we did everything from mountain bikes to children's toys to, to consumer goods. Uh, and it was a very, very steep learning curve. I guess uh, if I look back now and go, what's the difference between working in a large organization and running your own business? I would say uh, the highs are higher and the lows are lower when you have your own business. When it's going well, it's fantastic. When things are not so well, it's a disaster. If you lose a pitch, uh, it's, it's big stuff. I think when you work in a big organization, the, the bumps are less bumpy. Uh, so I did that for about four years. Um, fortunately, it's a sad story. I sold that company because my business partner was uh, unfortunately killed in the tsunami uh, in Thailand at Christmas. Um, so I, I, I sold that business and went to work for the company that I'd sold to for, for about 18 months while we settled down and moved all of my team over. So quite a traumatic time. I think that's the other thing I guess I've learned in my career of um, – there's always going to be some unexpected black swan that comes along. And for me, that was the first one, uh, which was not planned, completely a random out of the blue. And it, it teaches you that you need to be able to be uh, very resilient, but also very able to zig and zag and be very flexible. And after I'd worked for that agency that I sold to for about 18 months, and I realized that running your agency and being part of a big agency are very, very different things. And um, when you start not to be able to influence in the same way, uh, it doesn't have the same excitement for me. And uh, you, don't, you don't own things very long. You don't own pro projects very long. You hand them back. And that wasn't for me. So then I, um, I was actually interestingly asked back to Rekit Benkiza, who... Um, I'd worked obviously in R&D for them. I'd worked in marketing for them. We'd actually been a, a supplier to them when I had my own design agency. Uh, and they were really came with a bit of a question of we're spending a lot of money on design and a lot of companies are, are talking a lot about design. And this would have been about 15 years ago. Uh, a lot of big FMCG companies were taking it very, very seriously and creating roles on boards. P&G, notably one of those interestingly and um I, I went back to them with with a bit of an expensive question for them really which was are we getting value out of design are we spending enough on it are we spending too much on it how can can we manage design can you control it uh and what i did for them for about four years is i set up a what became a design management department how can you manage and control design uh and i look at design in in, in three ways, really. There's a bit of a framework to managing design. And one is you need to think about design strategically, tactically, and operationally. And then you need to look at um, the processes, tools, systems that come around design. Um, you need to look at your resources, internal resources, external resources. You need to look at your communication about design. And, and most importantly, you need to understand what's your corporate strategy or brand strategy and then how do you ladder up your design strategy against that and that's a bit of a matrix and if you if you fill in that kind of matrix then you can you can bring and manage design in an organization 
I think then, interestingly, I, I probably got my second black swan in my career. Uh, I, I was asked to go and become head of design for Novartis, so much more moving into a more healthcare space. And uh, I accepted a job in, in Switzerland, interestingly. So a chance to move outside of the UK for the first time, which is something that I'd always had a bit of a desire to do. It's a bit of a checklist item on your career that um, hard to advance a big career without, without working internationally. Um, so I accepted a job uh, reporting into the board of Novartis, the CMO. And unfortunately, uh, two weeks before I actually moved my family and everybody across to Switzerland, they fired the CMO. Uh, and he was the reason I was going to that job. You know, he was an inspiring wow. person, um, really cool guy, really wanted to drive change with design within that organization. I would say it was a company of products and selling chemistry to make people better and not really thinking about people and the actual users and understanding them. And he was really keen to become much more user-centric and use design to help that. But I think uh, a big learning for me is that if you lose your top-down sponsorship, very, very difficult to drive change in an organization. Uh, and really, if you're going into an organization like that with a remit of bring new thinking, bring new ways of working, uh, bring a new philosophy of design thinking, and where does that work? If you don't have that top-down sponsorship, it becomes almost impossible. And I spent a year trying before I uh, gave up and I never actually moved fully to Switzerland. I commuted every week uh, for a year, which um, I wouldn't advise anybody to do, if I'm honest. It's pretty tough to get the first flight on a Monday, the last flight on a Friday. Um, it's quite a tough, a tough way of working. But it was, again, a learning experience. Again, be agile. Uh, it was a black swan, not planned. Uh, I planned to settle in Switzerland for a few years. And then... Um, I was lucky enough to meet the CEO of the GSK consumer healthcare business. I'd, uh, I'd realized I needed to find a new job. I think as head of design, those jobs don't get advertised. So the truth behind the story is I actually went and uh, worked with headhunters who were hiring CEOs and said, please just, just get me an interview with the CEO to talk about design. And they're going to learn something in 60 minutes and if they don't want to offer me a job, great. They've learned about design and we've, we've helped be an advocate for design. If they're interested, then great. That would work for me. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet the CEO of GSK and it was a lady who just joined actually from L'Oreal. So quite a different, a different background, of, uh, but a, a background in more of an FMCG kind of space. Very, very consumer centric and had almost the same mission of the guy that I went to join Novartis for of how do we, how do we become consumer obsessed? How do we build empathy with consumers and how do we give them something beyond just a product solution? How do we, how do we give them advice? How do we give them information? How do we give them education? How do we give them a better experience of our products? And for the last eight years, that's what I've been doing. I've been, in some ways, running a change management program around design, you know, changing the organization's perception of what design is. I think if I, if I wind the clock back eight years and asked people around the building what's design, they would have probably said um, pictures on boxes, uh, a bit of packaging design, uh, a very low-level thought about what design is. They would have certainly never said design thinking and they would have certainly never thought about design in the way that we do now, which is, a, which is about how do you build um, more of a connected experience for consumers and how do you design that experience? And that can involve how do we create a great app? How do we have great websites? How do we give our healthcare professionals, both dentists and doctors and pharmacists, how do we design good materials for them to help educate them? How do we bring things to the business like inclusive design? So how do we make sure that um, more people are able to have access to our products? Our, our purpose at GSK is to help 
more people do more, feel better and live longer. And therefore my purpose as head of design is to, is to act against that mission. And we do that through our brands. So how do we create a, uh, a toothbrush from Sensodyne that we can sell in India at a more realistic price for that market so that we give more access to people in India to better dental hygiene and freedom from sensitive teeth. Uh, how do we help uh, parents in the middle of the night who want to give Panadol to their children and it's dark and it's a difficult place and it's the child's hot and sweaty and screaming and how do we make that easier for them? How do we make mm-hmm. it a one-handed, simple experience? So design's quite a big, quite a big remit at GSK, which makes it fantastically exciting uh, as a business and having this role of bringing a new function into a business as well. So I love design. I'm really excited about it, but then helping educate thousands of marketeers about how you can use design more is is part of the fun of the job as well. So that's probably a long-winded answer to a little bit about me, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you can tell I'm excited about it. Huh? Uh, yeah. It's a great job. I'm, a very, I'm very lucky. that. But I think if I reflect back where I was before, which is I probably had three careers. You know, I've had a career as a designer. I've had a career as a marketeer. I've had a career in R&D. Um, and now I've got a, a sort of multidisciplinary kind of role as as a design leader uh, which is quite exciting so i think that that thought of a career isn't just one one dimensional one function a career can be multiple functions is quite interesting it's an amazing career and you know a fascinating story as well which kind of has everything from you know swapping jobs and taking the leap to you know even tragedy in some cases which has really shaped obviously everything about what why you've moved and where you are now and i think you know pulling a, th- a few threads out of it you're you've got such an entrepreneurial nature about you and it seems like so many of your job and career moves have, have really required that not only to do the job but even to to move because it's like you said that you know when you had to just try and get a recruiter to get you interviews with the ceo to, to almost create your own job it's an incredible you know lesson for people listening that you know just leverage the skill set that you have and actually just go and create something go and go and actually go and do it you know and the other thing as well was you, you seem very people and impact focused it's interesting listening to you that it always you're very passionate about design but you're particularly passionate what's what sounds like the return on investment from design it sounds like shifting people's minds from you know design for the sake of it to design that actually matters and i think that's a, a really interesting thing and i think you know one of the reasons that we brought you onto this podcast excuse me was today was because we've had a, f- a few different people on 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 our podcast over the weeks and it seems to be that Almost in every other podcast, we talk about how design is so important for health tech and some of the founders that have been on from the likes of Stephen from Echo and Tanya from LV and Peter from Sleepio, they, they almost attribute a, most, if, if not a vast majority of their success to the fact that they have a very, very high focus on design and they've built their companies in such a way to leverage the fact that because consumers have a choice in what they choose in health tech nowadays there's a lot more b2c models there's a lot more b2b2c models and things like that with consumers having a choice of what's actually bought it means that things have to be built around these consumers and have to make a a real difference so yeah it um yeah all of that's just really interesting for me i don't know if you've got any comments or reflections on that yeah, I think um, I think design has been this under-leveraged tool, um, and I think the the reality of how designers think is probably a bit of a reflection about how I talk about people. Uh, that you know, one of the key designer skills I would say is to listen with their eyes, um, and and that's a little bit about design thinking. You know, if you go to research and you watch you watch people, uh, most people are listening to what they say. And that gives you a bit of information, but actually um, it's more watching what they do. And that can be very insightful in terms of building empathy with people. And 
as you, as you say, people have got a lot of choice right now. And I would say that inflation expectation has also hit the market in the last, the last five plus years. And, you know, people, people are not prepared to have a poor experience from a brand or a product. You know, it's just, it's not acceptable. And therefore, only companies that are really investing in listening to their consumers and watching them. You know, I would say it's one of those questions where you kind of go, when you tie a shoelace, do you start with the left or the right or the right or the left? You probably can't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if I watch you, I'm going to learn. Yeah. And if I learn, then I'm probably going to solve the problem by listening with my eyes. Yeah. And so I think a lot of those companies that have started up recently, um, they've come from being really, really empathetic with their consumers. They've really yeah. understood what's, what's the problem they're going to solve. They're, they're not just, they haven't come at it and assumed that if I, if I do this and it works really well, you will just buy it. If I tell you it's the best, it's not good enough. Yeah. It, it, it's got to, it's got to fit into their world. And I think the equally the thought of, we just push it out there and everybody's the same, you know, those days are over. You know, people, people want things that works for them and fits into their world, their ecosystem. I think a lot of big brands have been quite arrogant and said, well, we're big, it's good, go buy it. Uh, versus a lot of entrepreneurial startups that you're right, have often been designers have been very close to that startup and helped with that startup. And, because they're so passionate about you know, design thinking, which is about empathy. What do we know about our consumers? Really understand them. Then what do we know about the, the brand strategy? Where do you want to go with your brand? And then what's your corporate strategy? And how do you ladder that together to solve problems? It's a problem-solving technique based upon understanding consumers. That's all it is. There's no magic. And I think the other thing about design is uh, it's probably uh, – a lot of the best designers are dyslexic, dyspraxic and introverted. Yeah. Mm. And that hasn't helped the industry. And I've heard a great anecdote about if you think about designers, uh, designers are a bit like cats and the advertising industry are a bit like dogs. Yeah. The advertising industry is like throw the stick, throw the stick and they'll bring it back. Designers tend to be a bit shy and a bit, I quite liked you yesterday. I'm not sure I'm going to like you today. And that hasn't helped the industry. Yeah. And it's such a powerful thing. And I think equally it, it, it hasn't helped itself when it's talked a lot about itself. You know, if it just goes, it's nice and it's shiny and I like it. Great. Yeah. It's irrelevant. That's, that's art, you know, not mm. design. For me, mm. design is something that is going to create some commercial success. It's going to change somebody's, thoughts about something you know it's actually for a problem solving for a reason to create commercial or better gain otherwise it's art and i think yeah. it's not helped a lot where design sometimes talks a lot about i like it i don't like it you know i'm the first to say to my boss often when he says he doesn't like it you know my answer is great i'm really pleased you don't like it because you're not a 65 year old denture wearer and this is designed for you. This is mm. and so you're not that person. So you shouldn't like it. Great. And a lot of the design work I do, personally, I, I don't necessarily aesthetically like. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, and the design industry has often sometimes spent a lot of time doing things it liked. And I think some of these great companies that have started up have they've just been consumer obsessed. And then they've just used design, which... Uh, you get a lot of bang for your book out of design as well. You know, you, for not a lot to spend, you can get an awful lot of value. Uh, and a lot, you know, a lot of patents come from design, um, massive amount of value. And those companies have just invested. They've gone all in with probably relatively small budgets in the scheme of things and got immense value out of, a rather under-leveraged type of type of function. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting that because what design is for you know from what you're saying, design is not a nice to have 
design is not a let's just try and make everything look slick and cool and those different things. Design is actually a, a principle of you need to solve problems in a way that creates uptake and stickiness and all these different things, but essentially solves a problem for the user at the end of the day. And that, that is essentially is a principle and all of the different things that happen with design after that are anchored in that principle of just genuinely solving a problem in be that an ergonomic way or whatever, whatever it is. But that, that is essentially the principle that underpins it, which is so, it's so interesting that because that is literally the same as what a good entrepreneur will do if they're thinking of starting a company in a certain area. And it seems like the two things go hand in hand and it seems almost impossible to, to, as you say, you know, just be a big company that's got legacy systems and legacy customer base. And they just say, this is our new product, you're having it. And then it goes to the end users who don't have a real say in whether it's bought or not. Therefore, they can't really influence the purchasing decision. And yeah, guess what? It doesn't really work. The software is terrible, blah, 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 but they have to use it. Yeah, I think, I think the big shift, if you, if I was to try and say what's really simply changed is, Design used to be at the back end of the process. And it was kind of like, oh, just make it look nice and we'll put it on the market. It was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was always at the back end of the process. And the big shift, and it's the thing that the small startups have done, is they started out with design. And what we've done yeah. is you just bring it to the front end of the process. Yeah. It, by, and by embedding it at the front end of the process all the way through, you just get the value at every point. And... Uh, and so it's it's moving it further upstream within your organization is the game changer. It's not the hand it to the designer, whatever, six months before you're going to launch it or three months and go, can you just, can you just make it look nice? Just make mm. it look okay. Because by then it's it's too late. You know, it's too, too late. It's mm. when you have the first inception of what you want to do. And it's where the startups work. You know, they had an idea. They've gone to somebody and they've brought that idea to life using design. You've got to bring design to the upfront into where you're, where you're innovating and where the inception of problem solving is. That's the big shift. It's not at the end. So interestingly, so I went to an event recently. So um, I know a guy called Giles Morrison. He's a UI UX designer. He's also a doctor and he held this event where lots of kind of young designers were looking to get into health. And one of the interesting things that they were talking about was, and one thing I, I sort of brought up to them was, was that you're going to have to try and explain very eloquently the return on investment of design. And I think it was interesting because the reason I asked that question was clearly because my default definition of design was definitely leaning towards what what you said is is what it isn't and what it shouldn't be which is that end of the process let's just make it quite cool because i think that the general perception of design and designers is that yes they're, they're on that aesthetic bit and that might be just my bias i don't know but the notion that what a designer will actually do is apply design thinking to the development process that's really what, what it is. And actually the return on investment then is actually very clear because at the end of the day, you're going to buy a product that, uh, well, you're going to create a product that genuinely fits the needs of the user and the customer. So that, that design thinking is what a designer will come to apply. I mean, what, what advice would you give then to young designers that might be listening or indeed young companies in health, in health tech that, that might not have thought about bringing a designer on or how do you think those two groups can genuinely communicate value to each other and actually help propel the space forwards? So, so I think, I think you, you have to stop talking about the stuff. You, you have to stop talking about the almost like what's, what's the, the tenant of the skills that you have and start talking about the problems you're going to solve. So what's the expensive business question that we're going to solve with design and that, that designer shouldn't be saying, I'm a, great, I'm a great UX designer. Yeah, you are one of, I think there's 100,000 people in China graduating design university every year. Yeah. Wow. So uh, you're a great UX designer, great, well done. Yeah. Um, what, what you should be saying is, of the last, whatever, six business banking apps I've worked on, 
they've shifted the amount of user base, the amount of click through, the amount of transactions by X, Y, and Z percent because it's now seamless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about how they talk about their subjects. So talking about, I can develop you an app in a week or I can design it. So it looks like that. That's, that's not, that's not going to, that's not going to help me in my organization. What's going to help me is that um, it's far easier to find information faster within my, within my uh, material that goes out to healthcare professionals that we, we have a big online platform. Um, What's really important to them is uh, they can find information fast. What's, What's super important is, you know, I recognize that our, uh, you are missing a large target audience on your website because there's no button on it to make the text twice as big. And 50% of your target audience is wears glasses and you've done nothing for that audience. And what I did is I saw that as an opportunity. I've changed your, your website and now you've got this many more users who are getting information from you and buying your things online. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I understand. That, and, and the same from a company perspective, you know, who's hiring designers, you know, they, they need to be thinking about what, what, are, what's their list of tricky problems or what's their list of consumer insights or unmet needs that you're going to throw at this person. Cause you're not going to write them a design brief going, this is nice. You're going to write them a design brief that says, of the what you know this this operation this procedure this thing currently takes six hours to to perform and it has 79 different tasks Mm. how do you make it happen in four hours with 40 tasks Mm. and if you do it in four hours with 40 tasks then that means we can we've got we've doubled the volume of output that we can get out and how much is that value yeah that, so yeah. It, it's, it's just a different conversation yeah. than talking about, can I draw well? Or <laughs> can I use this piece of software? Everybody can use that piece yeah. of software. It strikes me that the worst thing you could probably say to a designer is, is can you make this look cool? <laughs> yeah. It seems yeah. like that, that is just doing them such a disservice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, if you're back, whatever, 15 years, and the way to design for women was make it pink and make it small. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that it's just an alien thought to me it's just horrific that that's kind of where you would go why well, it's why? interesting isn't it like, there's almost like a, yeah. you heard it there my sort of visceral response yeah. to just how ludicrous that is right now you know but, but if you if you walk back and think about the supermarket aisle 15 15 years ago god yeah that, that's how it looked yeah how insane is that it's, it's it's stuff like that that makes me angry uh because it's not it's not insightful mm. not insightful who said they wanted some small pink thing? Yeah. <laughs> Completely not insightful. It's 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 what we think you want versus yeah. what you want you want. Yeah. 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 Well designed by men for women, right? Yeah, ridiculous. Um so I guess so on, on that note then, so I guess mo- moving us on slightly to you've worked with, with with people like Panadol and Sensodyne that you mentioned and things like that. Oh, you know, you're not going to be able to apply design thinking to start that company, but you are going to be able to apply design thinking to the problems that they have. So I don't know if you're able to just talk through an example of something that you've done or something that you've led um, that you were, you know, pretty close to on the ground floor, just to kind of put some color onto what what a design project really looks like from start to finish for, you know, a company like that, that's got a big problem to solve. Yeah. So, so, uh, I kind of briefly mentioned it earlier. You know, one of one of the problems that we really wanted to solve was on, on Panadol was was for parents, and I, I think it's it's a really precious time when you're you're a new parent. And, um, it's Panadol paracetamol, right? That's just uh, a brand yeah, name for paracetamol. paracetamol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's our it's our paracetamol product, and you've got a precious child. It's a precious bundle, and when it's unwell, the you know the anxiety is massive, and particularly around um around giving medicine you know really you know truthfully the last thing you really want to do is to give your precious bundle medicine yeah it's a little Mm. bit of an alien thought and we we had a lot of people who really 
children had fever and they were kind of suffering a bit because people were really concerned about overdosing the amount of chemistry, the amount of paracetamol. And obviously, you know, we all know paracetamol can be something that can be extremely harmful to you. Um, you know, at its worst possible place, it's, that's linked to suicide. But, uh, you know, the truth is that it, it can be super beneficial to helping make you better. Yeah. And it's gentle on your stomach and things, but, so dosing was key. You know, that, that was the, the insight. Uh, you know, when you really got down to it was, I'm, I'm really worried about giving too much. Yeah. And a lot of the ways that, you know, if you're tipping things onto spoons and things like that, it's, you know, it, it's, it's something that you're concerned about. Yeah. And that, that's what we tapped into. And uh, that was, that was the problem. We were like, okay, how do we get, get more people using our product feeling comfortable with our product in order to grow the franchise. Uh, and we actually, in that instance, we actually designed with, with consumers in the room. So we did a, an agile design process. And really, you know, the thing to do there is you keep designing with them and you keep testing with them. And when they won't give you the product back, you know you've got a great solution. And we created a, a unique single-handed, one-use, easy-to-use, 100% guaranteed volume that would mean that you could dose without any concern. And it was designed with parents for parents. That's how we talk about it. Uh, and so it was, it, was, it was helping us, you know, what do we want to do? We want to, we want to build our franchise of this product and we want to, we want to find why people are not, are not investing in it as much as they should do. So a lot of good upfront work. I think that's the other thing is, you know, you need a slow start for a fast finish. You know, everybody puts all their energy into quickly rushing to get it to market. Um, and they just don't put enough upfront thought in. And I, if you go, you have to go slow to go fast with, with good, with design thinking. Uh, so, so that, that will be my, you know, that's, that's an example we have, um, you know, I, I think I spoke a little bit earlier around the area of using inclusive design. So you can use different types of design. You know, inclusive design is about looking at people. You know, often we design for Mr. or Mrs. Average. But actually, when you go to the edges, that's where the interesting things lie. So if you design something that's for a, a, mi a more minority group, actually it becomes beneficial for a much wider group. So if I, if I give you an example of that, um, not in my industry, but so I would take something like a pizza cutting wheel. Yeah, the actual little wheel that you use to cut pizzas with. It's an inclusive product because you can use it left-handed, you can use it right-handed, you can use it if you have arthritis, you can use it if you're a 10-year-old. And therefore it's a very inclusive product, whereas a knife isn't necessarily as inclusive as that. And there are, there are, you know, some very simple things about thinking that, you know, I'm left-handed. When you're designing, you've got to make sure you're designing things that are ambidextrous. And there's a lot of things out there that aren't. Equally, mm. you've got to design things thinking that quite a large proportion of the audience might be colorblind. And particularly around instructions for use on, uh, on medicines not a place where you want to get things wrong and some people might not be able to read it. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you as well. So it's just got me thinking then that through all these projects and things that, that you do and, and the, the way that problems are presented, I, I see like an increasing, you could call it a role or you could just, you know, say it, it's an increasing element to consider, which is that of data. So, I mean, where does where does data fit into a design process? Do you do you rely on it? Do you use it to to infer things? And I guess how how do you use data to sort of bring about a more personalised experience in the end? Because I assume you absolutely can. Yeah, yeah. So, data and analytics has just exploded. Yeah, in fact, we would almost say that data is a new molecule. Um, I, we we've got so many more places that we can find information. So be that, um, what a con where, you know, where do you get insights from? Well, we can find so many more insights online now just by 
listening to what people are talking about us on Facebook. Yeah, that's, there's, mm. there's a place of data and information just in following social media and knowing what people are saying, what they like about products, don't like, what are the problems, what are their life hacks? You know, often a, a hack is a way of solving a problem because something's not great. Well, okay, so there's a piece of insight that you can design against. Why have they even hacked it? They've hacked it because it's rubbish. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, um, you know, if you think, go back, go back 20 years when you bought a video recorder, came with a massive instruction book, 50 pages. That's just because it's a really badly designed product. Buy an iPhone now, no instruction book. Huh. Yeah. Because it's intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there, there's a place you can go for information. Obviously, um, we, we could do an awful lot of real time AB testing now and get instant feedback. So it's easier for us to create a minimal viable product or a minimal lovable product um, and test it and iterate with consumers. I think the idea of uh, probably everybody was like, we put a load of effort in, we make it absolutely perfect, then we launch it. We're not really like that now. You know, it's, it's, let's, let's get it to a minimal viable product. Let's get it out there. Let's test it. Let's build it. Let's improve it. So you're never, you know, it's never finished and it's always going to be better tomorrow than it is today. Kind of mentality. Yeah. You get so much input. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we've launched it, it's, it's, it's the worst it's going to be on the day you launch it because mm -hmm. every day you're going to be using insight and analytics and data, you know, to make it better, you know, particularly, you know, the area of whatever banking apps and all that sort of thing is, is real time being improved and created better. You know, every time you go on your banking app, why does it say it needs updating? Because they've learned something, they've improved it and they've launched the next version in overnight while you've been in bed. You just used the term there, a minimal lovable product. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it depends what sector you're in. Yeah. So if it's, for some brands, minimal lovable is great. You know, maybe in a, in a more pharma industry, you talk about a minimal trusted product. Oh, interesting. Because um, trust is, I would say, probably where we are in the consumer products and pharmaceutical products. I'll, I'll probably talk a bit more about minimal trusted product um, because you're not going to do anything that goes out there that has any element of risk, obviously. Uh, a minimal lovable product, you know, it could be t-shirts, it could be trainers, it could be, you know, that, that is, they're kind of more love brands. And how are, you, how are you measuring lovability and how are you measuring trust in those two examples? So, so trust's bigger for us. Yeah. So we, we, we have a trust index uh, about how, how trusted our brands are. Um, and we're measuring that again, real time data, uh, based upon various different, uh, metrics of, questionnaire you know would you buy it would you recommend it you know all that kind of you know would you would you pass it on all those sorts of things we are okay. tracking within our organization to make sure that um things like things like trust uh and obviously value and quality and all those sorts of things we're looking at all the time because back to that roi of design question yeah um yes we're going to test do people like can they read our instructions and do they get our instructions? But, but we, we want to try and get to a bit more of a higher order place than, than a very, that very base level. So we're constantly measuring the equity of our brands uh, based on multiple different statements. And we would measure, we measure trust and uh, quality and uh, like I say, love slightly less for us. Um, uh, but, uh, those, those are really, really important that you track them. Yeah. That you've got to have, you, you get what you measure. Huh? Uh, so it's really important you get the right KPIs in. You know, there's a lot of people measuring things that aren't necessarily going to shift their business. So KPIs are really important. And then you, you get what you measure. So if, you, if we go after trust, then we're going to, everything we do would be about um, building that into our design process, our advertising process, our communication process, uh, and we track it and we'd expect to see it improving. Mm. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a phrase I remember from my um, educational days that assessment drives learning. And it's the same sort of thing. You know, if you set the goalpost somewhere, that's going to eventually um, affect every little decision that you make in order to get there. So, yeah, it's absolutely setting the, setting the goalposts, right? I completely agree. So I just want to talk a bit more practically then to some of the health tech entrepreneurs listening. And I guess throughout this podcast, what we've been doing is defining design and kind of explaining the the benefits of it and you know talking about the the best times to introduce design thinking at least and that's at the start of any process from what i can gather for the for the health tech entrepreneurs that are listening that might be at varying stages some might be currently in a in a job with an idea for something different their own business others might be you know getting their first bits of seed money others might be sort of series a and beyond what when do you think is the best time to bring in designers uh, you know design thinking definitely asap but to actually bring in designers when do you think and a design team when do you think a company needs that so, so you, you know i'm going to say day one <laughs> I'm going to say day one. You're biased though, Andrew. Come I, on. I'm, ma- I'm massively biased. I'm massively <laughs> biased. But everything you touch, hold, sit on has been designed. So just, just to pull it out then. So arguably then you're saying a designer, i.e. somebody who has studied design, would make an excellent co-founder for someone who might be a domain expert or a, a technical expert. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, it, it's, they, they are, they are, turning turning words into things and that's that's what you're doing you know if you've got an idea or you've got a concept or you you've got a problem to solve how else are you going to do that without the skills of a designer it's a good point actually because one of the things you said right at the start which i wrote down is that when people learn design they learn to think strategically tactically and operationally so actually you know they've they're they're covering quite quite a lot of the things that you need to run ops for a startup there. Yeah. I think those, and I think also we, we've talked a lot about a, a problem or a thing. I, I think, you know, we would even, we would talk to our HR department about what's the onboarding process and the recruitment process for GSK and how could we redesign that? So if you're building a company or starting up a company, you need to hire people. And how are you going to do that? How's that going to be different? And what's the onboarding experience? It's designing. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, yeah. so you know, how, you, how do you do your, whatever, invoicing? How do you send your invoices out, get your invoices in? It's on a system. Oh, that system's been designed, doesn't it? Is that system slick? Has it got UX, good UX, good UI? Design's just not in a... In, in my head, it doesn't just sit in a marketing department. Or indeed for products. It's actually in a, every system that you're... Yeah. yeah, it's I just mean, every, every system that, you're, that your company's actually doing can be thought about in that way. That, so that, yeah, innately then does yeah, bring in the case for, yeah. for bringing people in on day one. That does make Yeah, you, you, would, you would set up, you know, if you're going to... How are you going to do your distribution? Is it a direct-to-customer model? And how do you... What's your, how are you going to design your distribution? If it's through the mail... What does that look like? You need to design it. It needs to fit through the mail. It needs to be safe. It needs to be secure. (laughs) So so I I would say, you know, if you build it into the DNA of your organization, and I think it's why a lot of startups where it's been a designer who's been leading it or a designer has been quite involved in it, it's because they're, they're hardwired to fix problems and they're not, they're kind of department neutral. Yeah, it's, it's why I would say design's agnostic. Yeah, it, it's quite an agnostic discipline if you really think at quite a high level about it because it doesn't care whether it's fixing a, a finance invoicing yeah. system yeah. or it's creating an electric bike to get to work on. Yeah, um, it, 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 it's a discipline that works across quite a broad span and it's it's pretty agnostic. It's not like a creative industry that are, we sell TV ads. 
Therefore, yeah, incredibly, incredibly broad, incredibly broad. Yeah. And actually, now now that I think about it, you know, when when we have you know Stevens on on one of our our earlier episodes of this of this podcast from from Echo, and you know Echo's business is you know distributing prescription drugs to people's homes, and so what his his co-founder was from Apple, where obviously design is front and center. I'm not sure if he was a specifically a designer himself. I think he might have been actually, but yeah, you can see that a company like that needs so much process and so many different processes that you can definitely see why Stephen has said when he's on the podcast, you know, that they've had to have this, you know, massive focus in design. And I can see that now because almost throughout this podcast, my, my definition personally of design has completely changed. And so I can understand now how design has been absolutely essential to build a company, which is so heavily reliant on various operational processes that seemingly have to be so streamlined to keep every cost down and actually build something that, that works for the end user. Yeah. Yeah. You're designing ecosystems. Yeah. And you're designing departments um, and you're designing new process. Design doesn't have to be a physical thing I can touch, Um, Mm. which again is probably, you know, go back 20 years and everybody was like, you know, give me the thing that you've designed. You know, you want a kettle or a toaster. (laughs) It's it's, it's beyond that now in my my mind. Yeah. And and I think that's, that's how, that's how you can get some real value out of it. Real value out of it. And for those young designers, they've got to start talking about it in that way. You know, you've got to start thinking about it and more, how do you design systems? Yeah. Um, and for startups and businesses, I'm kind of like, don't, don't leave it too late. Don't mm-hmm. leave it too late. You know, the sooner they come in, the sooner they're going to make things lean and well-designed to start with because the further you get down the tracks, the harder it is to rewire it. Yeah. You know, I work in an organization of 30,000 people. Change is hard. <laughs> yeah when there's 10 of you it's it's a lot easier that's awesome um and yeah what, what a great message um Adjie, I, i've really enjoyed this i've i've definitely learned a great deal as i tend to say on the end of most of my podcasts at the moment with the people that we're bringing on yeah i i, I think what you're doing is incredible i think the, the way that it applies to not, not only health but but all entrepreneurs is just incredibly valuable and i think yeah i'm going to be distributing this for pretty far and wide to get to get the message to quite a few people that that i certainly think need it now after listening to after listening to you talk it's been fascinating mate thank you fantastic fantastic thank you very much really appreciate it um so andrew i mean the way that we end these podcasts is we hand back over to you um to summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about what you're up to at gsk and then if you've got any asks of our audience feel free to include those and if you've got any bits of advice advice for designers or entrepreneurs that you want to end on then yeah over to you to close us out cool thank you so james thank you very much uh, i've really enjoyed the podcast uh i guess some leaving thoughts for me would be don't leave it too late to engage design within your organization give them even though designers might be a little bit introverted and uh not necessarily the first people to speak up it's worth investing time it's really worth investing time in helping solve problems with design. And I think uh, for anybody in design, um, you kind of need to, um, I'm talking at Cannes next week about how you need to color outside of the lines. And really that's about breaking your own traditional thoughts and self-limiting beliefs about what design is and see how you can use design to shape and help shape organizations. Uh, Thank you.